0: I invite you to open your Bible with me to uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 21. Book of Proverbs, chapter 21. We are continuing our sermon series together through the book of Proverbs. In the, in the book of Proverbs, what we are learning is we're learning about wisdom, which is the skill of living well in God's world. And we had this crazy idea that maybe some of us could use some wisdom, that maybe some of us could grow in living wisely, living well in God's world in this era. And so we're taking some time to work our way through the book of Proverbs and we're kind of making our way from the beginning toward the end of the book and uh, we're taking time to look at some of the most prominent themes that show up in the book of Proverbs as we make our way through. Today I want to especially pay attention to one proverb That speaks to an important theme, a theme of wisdom for pride and humility, wisdom for arrogance and humility. When I first showed up at this uh, church, when I first met this congregation, I was an angry and argumentative college student. I had nothing to do with planting this church other than being one of the most difficult participants for the first five years or so of this church's life. And when I showed up as an angry and argumentative and difficult 18-year-old, there were a couple of values in this congregation, a couple of values in this church family that gripped my heart, even as an angry and argumentative college student. And those values were, number one, A sense of the sweetness of the centrality of Jesus Christ in everything. There was an intentionality in this church community, which I hadn't seen elsewhere, an intentionality about connecting everything in life with the story of redemption that we discover in Christ Jesus. And I hope that to this day, That priority, that value of the centrality of Jesus Christ in everything remains one of our chief values as a church. A second value that I encountered here was maybe more surprising to me. It was a value of humility. A value of humility as one of the chief virtues of the Christian life, a value of humility as one of the most important ingredients in the pathway of discipleship, one of the most important ingredients in a recipe for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I hope that to this day, humility remains one of our most highly regarded values in our pursuit of discipleship together as a church. But before we dig into this proverb, I want to point out that humility is not just a value that we made up as a church family. It's not a value that we discovered or that we invented or that we decided to paint on a wall because we thought it was cool. In fact, we've never had a wall to paint it on. But humility is important to us because it's important to God. And across the generations and around the world, Christians have recognized the importance of humility as one of the premier values of Christian discipleship. Rewind 1,700 years for just a second. In St. John Chrysostom. 1700 years ago, was trying to describe what is the foundation of this unique approach to life called Christianity, this unique approach to life which is different than the other approaches to life out there in the world. And St. John Chrysostom puts it like this, the foundation of our philosophy is humility. Or the North African Bishop Augustine Also, about 1,700 years ago, like to put it like this. When a certain rhetorician was asked what the chief rule is, what was the chief rule in eloquence, he replied, delivery. What was the second rule? Delivery. What was the third rule? Delivery. So, Augustine argued, if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always, I would answer, Humility. It's like the saying we have in real estate. What are the three rules of real estate? Location, location, location. St. John Chrysostom, St. Augustine, and many brothers and sisters in our faith across the centuries and around the world would say, what are the three values that we hold dear as Christians? Humility, humility, humility. And of course, we live in a culture that does not value humility the way that God's Word values humility. We live in a culture that does not value humility the way that our brothers and sisters in Christ across the centuries and around the world have valued humility. And so it's worth slowing down and listening to this ancient wisdom that comes to us in the book of Proverbs. And listening to how this ancient wisdom has something to say to us about these three great rules of the Christian life humility, 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 these three great values. I want to ask you to look with me, if you would, at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, which says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord Weighs the heart. Every way of a person is right in his or her own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. And I want to suggest to you that as we kind of absorb and digest and as we take nourishment From these observations that we discover here in Proverbs 21, verse 2, we will be well on our way toward learning the way of humility. Let's pay attention to these two observations that Proverbs 21, verse 2 gives us in two lines. Observation number one is this. It's the observation that self-assurance is a problem. Self-assurance is a problem. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Now, sometimes self-assurance is just plain funny, right? For example, I have a 13-year-old son. (laughs) 13-year-old boys, I don't know if you teenage boys realize this, are known for an inflated sense of self-assurance, And my son gave me permission to share this, but last night at the dinner table, one of my daughters was explaining to my son that someday when he grows up, he might need to know how to make a ponytail. That's easy, Owen replied with a great deal of self-assurance and no lack of self-confidence. And maybe you can imagine where this story is about to go. One of my other daughters volunteered that her hair could be used for an experiment. And five minutes and many failed attempts later, Owen was still bumbling around trying to make one simple ponytail in his sister's hair. Sometimes he would try to pull back the hair and he would get the, uh, the hair tie on there and there would be these great globs of hair. Uh, My wife told me it's called framing and you use it for prom, you use it for prom hairstyles. But that's not what we were going for. And so he'd try to pull back the hair and the prom hairstyle thing would still be going on. Other times he would do a better job of getting most of the hair back and there would still be these frizzes pointing out sideways, right? Other times he could do a pretty decent job of gathering the hair, but then it turned out to be a little more difficult than he realized to do the twisty thing with the hair tie, right? And, and, and so my son learned the hard way That sometimes self-assurance can turn out to be a little bit of a problem. Sometimes we can be deceived in our self-assurance, right? And of course, in that example, self-assurance, self-confidence is just funny. There's nothing really all that wrong with believing as a 13-year-old boy that you've got this ponytail thing down. Nothing really wrong with that. Sometimes, though, our self-assurances are the opposite of funny. Over the past few weeks, like many of you, I've read with deep grief about the moral hypocrisy of the late Ravi Zacharias, a renowned Christian speaker, who taught large audiences around the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ and who taught around the world in such a way as to explain the trustworthiness of the gospel and the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. And to his supporters throughout the years in his massive global ministry, Ravi Zacharias presented himself as a person whose life was characterized also by trustworthiness. He assured his listeners that in decades of marriage, he had never done anything inappropriate to violate his marriage covenant. After Ravi died, however, an independent review was done. There had been several allegations of sexual misconduct. The board of his ministry heard those allegations and dismissed them as attempts to slander his character. After he died, however, an independent review was done and the results were staggeringly evil. His hypocrisy was far worse than anybody would have guessed. His sexual misconduct was planned and paid for and very carefully covered up around the world for decades. While he was teaching others about the credibility of the Christian gospel and while he was accepting donations, sometimes in large figures, to his ministry banking on his personal integrity And trustworthiness. How does somebody get there? How do you get to that place of standing on stages telling people that Jesus is trustworthy and telling donors that they can trust you while knowing full well what you are doing with your life? To abuse women. To mistreat women. To with deep hypocrisy, violating the integrity of the ministry you're continuing. How does somebody get there? And if you read these very grieving reports, you begin to to discover that he was a master deceiver. Perhaps more deeply than that, he was masterfully deceived. He was a master deceiver in telling women while he was sexually exploiting them that this was God's blessing on his life. And a master deceiver in telling women as he was sexually exploiting them that they'd better not let anybody else know. Because if they did, they would be going against God's plans to use a great servant of God in great ways in the years to come. horrible and this horrific hypocrisy that we see in the life of ravi it reminds us of the danger of self-assurance it reminds us of the danger of beginning to believe in quiet and subtle ways i got this It warns us of the danger of allowing ourselves to believe I can handle this much of sin. It warns us of the danger of beginning to believe even small deceptions. I'm different than others. It warns us of the dangers of even believing small deceptions about yourself or about other people. This pattern of grieving hypocrisy in Ravi's life. It reminds us of the danger of self deception. Now, I sure hope that none of us here in this room are perpetuating hypocrisy to that degree. Sometimes people characterize what's happened with Ravi as a a moral failure, as if it's just some small, you know, stumbling in ministry. Don't we all sin? That's worse. And I hope that none of us are perpetuating that degree of hypocrisy. But when we hear about something like that, it should be a warning to every one of us to begin questioning the self-assurances that we've bought into about sin in our own lives. It should be a warning to each one of us to be careful what we believe. To be careful with those things where we say, I know that's a little edgy, but I got this. I know that other people wouldn't approve, but I can handle it. I know this might appear to be wrong if others knew all about it, but I'm different. It should warn us about the dangers Of self-deception. In fact, let me ask you this question in light of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a person is right in his or her own eyes. What sins have you grown comfortable with because of self-assurances in your own life? What sins or what patterns of immoral behavior... What sins or what patterns of unloving behavior have you allowed yourself to tolerate in your life because in your own assessment, I've got this. See, the book of Proverbs warns us we have this strange ability as human beings to deceive ourselves. Even while pursuing evil, Even while acting in ways that are harmful to others. Even while hurting people we love. We have this ability to deceive ourselves into thinking. This is right. It's okay. Maybe others wouldn't approve. But I got it. And I know this isn't the most comfortable thing to think about. But I ran into this week a. A quote from a professor of homiletics named Kelly Miller Smith, who reminds us that the word of God is not static and placid. It is dynamic and unrelentingly disturbing. (laughs) Behold, quotes you won't be seeing on Facebook often, right? You know, this isn't like going to turn into a meme that everybody's like, oh, that's so sweet. I love that God's word is relentlessly disturbing. But don't we sometimes need to get disturbed by God's word? Because we have this uncanny ability to justify ourselves to say, I got this. To say it's okay with me, maybe not for others, but I can handle it. To say, I know others wouldn't approve, but I believe before God, I'm okay. Because of this uncanny ability that we have to deceive ourselves. Sometimes we need God's word to come along and disturb us and point out the way of all kinds of people are right in their own eyes. But that doesn't settle the matter. Be careful. Be careful with self-assurance. Proverbs 21 verse 2 reminds us. And then it brings us to a second observation. Not only does Proverbs 21 2 remind us that Uh, Self-assurance is a problem. It also reminds us that the Lord evaluates the heart. The Lord evaluates the heart. You see, this is the MRI image that pierces beneath all of our self-justifications. This is the MRI image that goes deeper than our self-assurances. This is the MRI imaging of the Lord himself looking into our hearts and discerning what's really there, no matter how skillfully we've been able to deceive others in the past. I'm going to come back for a second to this issue of Ravi Zacharias. I planned to preach this passage in this topic months ago without any connection with Ravi in my mind, but as I was paying attention to it this week, I kind of couldn't help but think about his story. And one Christian journalist wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition website about what's happened with Ravi. And he put it like this. Colin Hansen says, Ravi Zacharias may have escaped justice in this world, but no one escapes justice in the next. Let that sink in. The way a man might be right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs. The Lord evaluates. The Lord will judge and judge accurately. Ravi may have escaped justice in this world, but no one escapes justice in the next. And Colin points out discerningly, no one can know what transpired between Zacharias and God at his judgment. Whether he understood what he'd done and repented of his sins, we just don't know. But we do know that God's justice is being done one way or another. Whether Ravi was the worst kind of hypocrite, preaching the gospel while living an absolutely unrepentant lifestyle, Or whether he's the sort of fellow that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They will be saved. But as through flames, Paul says, whatever that means, it's not happy. We do know that God's justice is being done one way or another. And the sexually immoral, apart from the righteousness of Christ, do not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God, God have mercy on us. thinking of the teaching, skipping over to the New Testament that Paul gives to Timothy in relationship to churches and their leaders in first Timothy chapter five, I don't think there's a slide for this one, but in First Timothy chapter five, verse twenty. Paul says, as for those leaders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The sins of leaders should strike a chord of the fear of God in our souls, according to the Apostle Paul. Does Paul believe in grace? Yes. And yet he believes that amongst those who are redeemed by God's grace, there should be a right kind of the fear of God. And then Paul goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 24 to say the sins of some people are conspicuous or obvious going before them into judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Paul sounds like one of the sages who wrote the book of Proverbs here, doesn't he? Some people's sin is found out during their lifetime and goes ahead of them to the judgment seat before God. Other people's sin will be found out later, Paul says. Something about this should sober us. Wake us up. Fact is, we have this dangerous ability to deceive ourselves into believing I got this. We have this dangerous ability to deceive ourselves into thinking I know that other people wouldn't approve, but it's best if they don't know. We have this uncanny ability to deceive ourselves through self-assurances. But Proverbs chapter 21 verse 2 teaches us the path of humility by reminding us the Lord evaluates the heart. He's not fooled as easily as a board of directors will be fooled. He's not fooled as easily as your friends in your small group that you keep lying to. He's not fooled the Lord weighs the heart and he and he weighs the heart with just scales with accurate scales he sees and he knows what should we do with this recognition that we're prone toward self-deception What should we do with this recognition that the Lord evaluates deeper than the surface level and he will not be fooled? I want to recommend that the pathway of humility that this proverb kind of gets us going on, you know, kind of picture that comes to my head is like, you know, uh, uh, this has been like such a beautiful snowy winter. I grew up in California. Some of you are like, that's the grace of God that you're saying that. It is. I've loved this winter, and we've had so much snow and so many opportunities to go to the sledding hill. And this year I've had opportunities to set my my three year old daughter on her little sled, right? At the top of the sled hill, and just give her a little push, right? And then whoosh. Proverbs twenty one verse two is like that little nudge from the Lord at our back. It's moving us in a direction. It's moving us in a way of humility. And the nudge that Proverbs 21.2 is giving us is a nudge to live each day quorum Deo. Now, I usually speak in English when I talk to you, so my apologies for borrowing a Latin phrase here, but it's a beautiful phrase that I think is worth knowing. That phrase coram Deo is an old theological phrase it's part of our Christian tradition Going back hundreds of years. And quorum Deo just means before God. Or in the presence of God. And part of this way of humility. Remember John Chrysostom says the foundation of our approach to life is humility. Remember Augustine says three rules of Christianity. Humility, humility, and humility. What does that way look like? It looks like living each day in the presence of God, living each day before the face of God himself, living each day and every aspect of our lives. With the awareness of God's presence. John Calvin Explained this idea of living quorum Deo. Living in the presence of God. Living before His face. He described it like this. He says, No one will weigh God's providence properly and profitably except Him who considers that His business is with His Maker and the Framer of the universe. You want to know the way of wisdom? It's to realize that whatever your business is this week, your business has to do first and foremost with your maker and the very framer of the universe. And when we live each day before His face, it teaches us a kind of wisdom, a kind of humility that will position us to live well in God's world. Now sometimes when we talk about Living before the face of God. Sometimes when we talk about the fact that the Lord weighs the heart, our first thought is, that's scary. Because we know all too well what we've thought, what has motivated us, what we've believed, what we've wanted. What we've imagined, what we've desired. And so we think to live my life before the very face of God. To live my life before the eyes of the one who knows all. To the very depths of my soul. We think at first that's dreadful. And here's what I want to tell you. Apart from God's grace, it would be dreadful. You're right. Apart from God's grace. Apart from the grace of our maker himself. To have every thought, every feeling, every desire exposed in the right judgment. Oh, that is a frightening idea. But when we draw near to Him and live in His presence by grace, through faith in Christ, when we live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when we stand before His face by grace through faith, Living quorum Deo is no dread. But an absolute delight. In fact, to live before the face of our God who loved us and sent his son into the world to give himself for us. To live before the face of our God who in love redeemed us from our sins. It gives us a whole new kind of assurance. Assurance. To live each day quorum Deo is to live with a new assurance. It's a kind of assurance that says this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Because before the throne of God above, I have a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. And therefore, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. I behold Him there, the risen Lamb. My Perfect, spotless righteousness. Not my own perfect, spotless righteousness, but mine in union with Him. My perfect, spotless righteousness. The great, unchangeable I am. The King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. Because my soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. See, the way of humility begins by getting rid of our own self-assurances. But that doesn't mean living a life without assurance. No, listen, our Lord invites us to get rid of our self-assurances So that we can embrace His better assurance. So that we can embrace the sure assurance. So that we can embrace the only true and enduring and eternal assurance that would ever be worth clinging to. The assurance that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, living each day before the face of God, by grace, through faith, is not a life without assurance. It's a life lived with a different kind of assurance. It's a life lived with a humble assurance. A humble assurance that says, I don't got this. I never did. And he knew it. And that's why he sent his son to live a perfect, spotless righteousness for me. So that by union with him, I can be brought into the family. And I can stand in his presence today. Not accused, not condemned, but welcomed. Declared righteous forevermore. By the only judge whose judgment will ever matter. And embraced as part of the family forevermore. That's the assurance that humility invites us into. But the way of humility, living each day, quorum Deo, not only invites us to live with a new kind of assurance, it also invites us to live with a new kind of motivation. Because you see, when our Father invites us in, And welcomes us with His embrace. And says, you are my daughter. And with you, in union with Christ, I am well pleased. When our Father welcomes us into His presence and embraces you with His fatherly love. And says, behold, you are my son. And in union with Jesus Christ, you are beloved. And in you I am well pleased. When we experience the embrace of the gospel in this way. When we realize that with Jesus we're okay. When we realize that with Jesus we're okay and we're going to be okay forevermore. The effect of that. If we let it sink in at all. The effect of that is not to say, great, I'm running right back to my sin. The effect of that is to say, thank you. And it's my joy to follow you. See, when we're embraced into the presence of God by grace through faith, following Jesus, Honoring God with every aspect of our life on Monday and every aspect on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Honoring God with every aspect of our lives no longer is merely a list of rules that we try to manipulate. Honoring God is no longer something that we're just trying to use as a badge to get others to trust us. It's an honor and it's a joy to live for him. Who gave himself for us. You see, living in the presence of God as people whose lives are embraced by grace through faith by the Father above, living each day, quorum Deo, in his presence, it gives us a new assurance and it gives us a new motivation. It gives us a new way to live with a new kind of humility, which is different and better and so much happier. Then that life of self-assurance, self-justification, hiding, pretending, faking. Living one way one day and a different way the next. Living one way with one group of friends and a different way with another. It gets exhausting, doesn't it? When we live based on our self-assurance, it's exhausting. Not to mention what it's preparing on that day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But to live each day in the presence of God, embraced by His grace, it gives us a new assurance and a whole new motivation to live all of life. Not to the glory and praise of my name, which needs to be protected at all costs. It gives us freedom to walk the low path, the path of humility, The path of true joy. All to the glory of His name. That's the path of humility that the book of Proverbs is inviting us into. I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.